You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. Good morning. Good morning. Hope everyone's doing well this morning. It's a joy to be with you. Truly is. Always grateful for these opportunities to bring God's Word to you. Let's go to the Lord in a word of prayer and then we'll begin. Our Father, we are grateful that we have this opportunity. We are grateful for Your provision for us, for Your uh, preserving of Your Word for us. And we pray that as we go to Your Word now, that Your Holy Spirit would would do His work. And we pray that Your Word would prevail mightily upon us this morning, upon our hearts and upon our minds. Conform us into the image of Your Son, Jesus Christ, for His glory. And it is in His name we pray. Amen. Amen. I invite you to take your copy of God's Word and open to the book of James. As I have opportunities to preach uh, here, few times a year usually, we've been working our way through the book of James, and uh, since there is usually quite a bit of time before we, uh, bef- between opportunities that I preach, I'll give you just a little bit of review, but let's go to James chapter 1. We'll read verses 1 through 17. Our focus this morning will be verses 13 through 15. James chapter 1, we'll read the full passage here for context. James, a bondservant, a slave of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes who are dispersed abroad, greetings. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its perfect result, so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. But if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all generously and without reproach, and it will be given to him. But he must ask in faith without any doubting. For the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. For that man ought not to expect that he will receive anything from the Lord, being a double-minded man, unstable in all of his ways. But the brother of humble circumstances is to glory in his high position, and the rich man is to glory in his humiliation, because like the flowering grass he will pass away. For the sun rises with a scorching wind and withers the grass, and its flower falls off, and the beauty of its appearance is destroyed. So too the rich man in the midst of his pursuits will fade away. Blessed is the man who perseveres under trial, for once he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life which the Lord has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. Then when lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. Every good thing given, every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. May God bless the reading of his word title of my sermon this morning is The Pernicious Progression of Temptation. The Pernicious Progression of Temptation. 
And we've already dealt with the first 12 verses of the opening chapter. And in the first 12 verses, James gives us, he begins discussing trials, why trials come, the, uh, the universality of trials, and how trials uh, produce in us some good things. Trials produce in us endurance. They produce in us wisdom. And it seems in verse 13, where we'll focus our attention this morning, that verse 13 kind of begins a new section. And some people have drawn a clear line of demarcation between verse 12 and verse 13. But uh, I think such a hard line of demarcation is, is unwise because even though James does seem to shift from trials to temptation, I think that verse 13 is not a line of demarcation. Rather, it's a, it's a, it's a swing verse. It's a transitional verse because trials almost always end up in what? Temptation. They present to us temptations. That is the nature of trials. Trials always produce temptation. Just a few examples of this. One trial might be that you got a bad report from the doctor. And that bad report from the doctor produces a temptation to do what? To maybe doubt God's goodness, to doubt His provision for us. Maybe you get a bad trial of a of a loved one who died in a seemingly untimely death. That is a trial that produces a temptation. Again, to doubt God's goodness, to, to doubt His control, His sovereignty, to complain. So trials end up in temptation. Here's one for you. How about this trial? Alienation of affection between you and members of your family because of spiritual matters because of biblical truth. And most of us in here could probably raise our hands saying that has happened to us. That there's been an alienation of affection between us and members of our own family because of biblical truths and the stands that we take. That is a trial. And the temptation is to compromise for the sake of peace, right? To compromise the truth so that we can have peace within our family. A trial produces a temptation. J.C. Ryle was the bishop in Liverpool, England, back in the 1800s. And J.C. Ryle said this, he said, quote, Never let us be guilty of sacrificing any position of truth on the altar of peace. And these are very acute trials that result in very acute temptations. And so verse 13 is a swing verse. It's a transitional verse moving from trials to temptation, but these two things are absolutely related and connected. What is important is our response to these trials. The right response revert, rev, uh, results in the things that we see in the first 12 verses of this chapter. Endurance, patience, wisdom. These are all the good fruits of making wise decisions in trials. And the ultimate good fruit, the ultimate reward, James says, is the crown of life. And we discussed two weeks ago when I preached that it literally in the Greek says the crown, which is life. The reward that is ours for going through trials, the ultimate reward is the crown of life. The crown, which is life. And dear friends, the reward that I look forward to one day when my life in this earth has come to a close my reward is not 
that I will live all of eternity without cerebral palsy. That is not what I look forward to. My reward is life Himself. The crown which is life. Jesus Christ. He is our reward. He is the reward that awaits us when this life comes to an end and we persevere through these trials. Remember a couple weeks ago, we hupomino, we endure under these trials. Jesus is our reward. As he said in Matthew chapter 5, Rejoice and be glad, for great is your reward in heaven. And our reward in heaven is Christ. He is our reward. James says, verse 13, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. Don't say that. Don't say that. And yet some people do, do they not? In fact, Adam, that's exactly what he said. Remember in the garden when Eve sinned first and then Adam? They sinned and then later they... God is walking through the garden. He calls out to Adam, Adam, where are you? God confronted Adam in his sin, and God asked him, Have you eaten of the tree of life which I commanded you not to eat? And Adam said, What did he say? Yes, Lord, I did. I'm sorry. No, he said, The woman. The woman you gave me. It's her fault. She did it. Adam was, in essence, blaming God for his sin. You did this to me. James says, don't say that. Don't say that. Israel blamed God. In Isaiah chapter 63, verse 17, Israel says this, Why, O Lord, do you cause us to stray from your ways? Israel blamed God for causing them to stray from his ways. Blame shifting. Don't say that God is tempting you. God does not tempt anyone. Because God cannot be tempted by evil. God cannot be tempted by evil. Literally in the Greek, it, the apotheo, it, it says that, that evil is apart from God. There is Evil finds no purchase in God. It is apart from Him. It is other than Him. Evil, any hint of evil, is absolutely foreign to God. It is alien to God. And this speaks of God's holiness, the blazing holiness that belongs to God. He is holiness defined. If you take all of the attributes of God and you were to sum them up in one, it would be this, that God is holy. God's holiness has been described as the Mount Everest of His attributes. Their evil has no place with God. It is wholly foreign. It is, it is alien to God. God cannot be tempted by evil. It has nothing to do with Him. God's holiness speaks to His otherness from us, His uh, separation from us. In fact, the very word holy, both in the Hebrew and in the Greek, Kadesh and Hagias, speaks to God's separation from us. And this gets to the heart of the gospel. Just as sin was foreign to Christ. Any righteousness is foreign to us. We have no righteousness on our own. We must have a righteousness that is foreign, that is alien to us, and that is the righteousness of Jesus Christ that is imputed to us 
when we repent of sins, turn from sins, and place our trust in the finished work of Jesus Christ. God cannot be tempted by evil. Habakkuk chapter 1 verse 13. Habakkuk 1 13 says this, Your eyes are too pure to approve evil, and you cannot look on wickedness with favor. It is not that God does not see evil. It is not that He does not see wickedness. Oh, He sees it. He just cannot look upon it with any approval. He cannot look upon it with any favor. Evil, any hint of evil, has nothing to do with God. He cannot be tempted by it. God cannot be tempted. Not that He won't be tempted. He can't be tempted. And maybe as I'm saying this, the wheels are turning in your mind and thinking, well, what about Jesus? Didn't Satan tempt Jesus? Indeed, he did. He did tempt Jesus. Well, God cannot be tempted. Wasn't Jesus God? So how can we say that God cannot be tempted when Jesus, when Satan tempted him? Well, Satan did tempt him. In Matthew chapter 4 and Luke chapter 4, Jesus had fasted for 40 days. Satan said, command these stones to turn into bread. Took him up on top of the pinnacle of the temple and he showed him all the kingdoms of the world. He said, if you'll bow down and serve me, I will give you all of this. Incidentally, Satan was offering to Jesus something that was not his to give. Satan didn't own the kingdoms of the world. God does. So don't ever get your theology from Satan. But Satan tempted him. Here's the difference. God cannot be tempted in such a way that there would be any possibility of him succumbing to that temptation. When you and I are tempted, there is absolutely the possibility of us succumbing to that temptation. Not so with God. There is no possibility that God can be tempted in such a way that he succumbs to it. Theologians have discussed the temptation of Jesus and they've offered a couple of uh, theories in this. One theory is this. Some theologians say that when Satan tempted Jesus, it was possible for Jesus not to sin. Possible for Jesus not to sin. Other theologians say that it was not possible for Jesus to sin. You see the difference? It was possible for Jesus not to sin, some say. Others say, no, it was not possible for Jesus to sin. The latter of these is the correct view. It was not possible for Christ to sin. It was not possible, an impossibility. The Satan's hapless and pathetic attempts to get Jesus to sin were absolutely futile. There was zero possibility of those attempts ever working. It is not possible for Jesus to have sinned. Why is it possible for us to sin? Because we have a fallen nature. Jesus did not. There, is, there was nothing in Jesus to find any purchase to cause him to sin. There absolutely is in us. Hebrews chapter 4 verse 15 says that Jesus was tempted in all ways as we are, and yet without sin. And then a few chapters later, the author of Hebrews says this in chapter 7, Jesus was holy, innocent, undefiled, separated, from sinners, other from us, separate from us. God cannot be tempted in such a way that there's any possibility of him succumbing to that temptation. And God does not tempt anyone, James says. He does not tempt anyone. Now, 
We've been talking for a number of sermons how God brings trials. And trials do turn into temptation. But God does not tempt anyone. He does bring trials. And trials are opportunities for temptation to arise. And opportunities for us, if we make the wrong decision, handle the, tempta- the trials wrongly to fall into sin. But God does not tempt anyone. How can this be? God does not tempt anyone with a desire for that person to fail the test. Does not test anyone with a desire for that person to fail the test. When Satan tempts us, he wants us to fail the test. Revelation chapter 12 verse 10. Satan is before God day and night accusing who? The brethren. He accuses us before God. Satan wants us to fail. God does not want us to fail. So when temptation comes from Satan, he desires our destruction. When trials come from God, yes, they are occasions for temptation, but he desires us to succeed. Abraham was tested. Probably the most acute test that one could possibly imagine. Sacrifice your son, Isaac. Abraham was tested and he passed. Israel was tested and they failed. God cannot promote what is entirely repugnant to him, and that is evil. God, When God brings trials, dear ones, please know that he is not trying to get you to fail. He's not trying to get you to fail the test. He wants you to succeed. James says, But each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. Carried away and enticed by his own lust. Now this phrase, carried away and enticed, it denotes baiting an animal or luring in a fish, hunting, fishing. It's a hunting and a fishing metaphor. Baiting an animal or luring in a fish. Uh, I don't watch a lot of TV, but some of the programs that I do enjoy, I do, I do like nature programs. I watch some of those every once in a while. And several years ago, I was watching this program, and uh, these people were out, and they were trying to catch a bear. I don't remember where they were, but they were trying to catch the bear. And they had this big, long metal tube, and they put this long metal cylindrical tube out in the woods, set it up, and then in the back of the tube, they put a big hunk of raw meat. At the front of the tube was a, a gate, a door that had been propped up so that the bear could walk in. And when the bear got to that meat, it would trip a, a, a trigger, and then the door would shut, trap the bear. And it showed him. The bear smelled the raw meat. He walked up to the tube, walked right in to the meat, triggered the trigger, and the door slammed behind him. This is the view here. And, and I was watching this, and, you know, the bear never, never stopped to think, huh, Reckon how come there's a big metal cylindrical tube out here in the middle of the woods? Reckon how come there's a big piece of raw meat in the back of it that's been deboned and dehaired? Perhaps this is an occasion for me to exercise a modicum of caution. He didn't think about that. His eyes and his nose were zeroed in on that raw meat. He was, he was enticed. A fish is enticed. The, the, the bait that is put on the hook. 
Now, I grew up in the South, and in the South, I don't think you have them up here. In the South, we have alligator snapping turtles, giant, giant things. And these snapping turtles, they'll go to the bottom of the lake or the river, and they'll open up their mouths. I mean, these, some of these things weigh 100 pounds. They're giant animals. And they'll open up their mouth, and their mouth on the, on the front of their beak, it's, it's this sharp, pointed beak, but their tongue comes up, and their tongue looks like a little worm, a little pink worm. And that alligator snapping turtle will lay down there, he'll open his mouth, and he'll wiggle his tongue, and it looks just like a worm. And the fish sees it. He sees that tongue. He thinks it's a worm, and he swims right up to it, completely oblivious that around this quote-unquote worm are these gaping jaws. And the fish is enticed. He's lured in, and he gets to that worm tongue, and it's the end of him. It's the end of him. This is what happens to us. The hook is baited, and we see something that we desire, and we are drawn away, and we are enticed by our own lust, and we don't stop to think about the consequences. We don't stop to think what is around this. And just recently, it's been in the news, unfortunately, and sadly we see this all too often, but there's a, a giant uh, mega church, Willow Creek Church, well-known pastor, and just in the last couple of weeks it was came out in public knowledge that uh, he had been having ongoing affairs with multiple women, lost his ministry. Prominent man in the Southern Baptist Convention, very prominent man in the Southern Baptist Convention, uh, just a few weeks ago, discovered that he was having an affair. Lost everything. He was enticed. He was drawn in by his own lust. And the consequences are deadly. These men lost everything. Careers are over. And because of what they did, they have good reason to examine themselves to see if they are in the faith. 2 Corinthians 13, 5. But they're drawn in, oblivious to the consequences surrounding it. Drawn in, enticed by their own lust. And dear friends, sin does that. But notice James says, by his own lust. There is no blame shifting here with James. We are drawn in by our own lust. Now it is very common, obviously, for men and women to be tempted. We are tempted. Everyone is tempted. And just as common as it is to be tempted, it is equally common to blame our failures to these temptations on someone else. Well, it's not my fault that I did this. It's not my fault. It's because of the way I was raised. You ever watch these reality shows on TLC? And they have these reality shows and, and they deal with different people and these individuals' lives are in various stages of destruction because of their own lack of self-control in whatever area, right? And their lives are just disasters. And I'm fully convinced, Kathy and I have talked about this, I'm fully convinced the reason these shows are so popular is because when you watch these shows, it makes you feel better about yourself, you know. Well, at least I'm not like those folks. But you listen to these people and they interview them and it's always someone else's fault. They never take ownership for their own sin. It's always someone else's fault. And they send them to these psychologists and, and the psychologist sits them down on the 
couch and says, well, tell me about your life story. And so the person has this sob story about how mom didn't like me, and dad didn't like me, the dog didn't like me. And, and it's, it's always, it's just someone else's fault. It's, it's always someone else's fault. They never take ownership of it. And the psychologist then goes on to explain, explain to them why they are the way they are. Blame shifting. There is none of this with James. None of this with James. We are drawn away, enticed by our own lusts. Notice too, not even Satan is mentioned here in this passage. Satan is not mentioned. Now James does mention Satan later in chapter 4, but he's not mentioned here. And so no Flip Wilson, the devil didn't make you do it. Dear friends, we cannot blame our sin on anyone but ourselves. Our responsibility for our own sin lies squarely and solidly on our own shoulders. No one else to blame. No one else to blame. Only us. I have no one to blame for my sin but me. You have no one to blame for your sin but you. Have you ever heard someone say this? Well, I'm sorry I did that, but... If you ever hear someone say that, I'm sorry I did that, but... Whatever comes after the but negates the I'm sorry. I'm sorry I did this, but this is why I did it. Someone says that, you know that that person has not come to a place of repentance. That person has not come to a place of godly sorrow over his or her sins. David did not offer excuses when he was caught in his sin, when Nathan confronted him. He offered no excuses. He went before the Lord. He said, against you and you alone, O Lord, have I sinned. He didn't blame it on anyone. Zacchaeus didn't blame his sins on anyone. When Jesus saw him, Zacchaeus had scurried up the sycamore tree. We all know that story. And Jesus said, I must stay at your house today. And just from that, Zacchaeus was convicted of his sin. He was a tax collector. And he said, Lord, I'll give away, I'll give away half of everything I own and whatever I have stolen from people, I will return to them four times over. That's repentance. That is repentance. He did not make excuses. He didn't say the system made me didn't. He, said I, he didn't say I have to report to my superiors. He owned it and he made it right. A few weeks ago, did you hear the story that uh, there was an article out that Benny Hinn had repented? Did you hear about this? Benny Hinn says that he had taken the prosperity gospel a little bit too far. And there was... <laughs> understatement of the year there. That he realizes he had taken the prosperity gospel a little bit too far. And there was big excitement among this, amongst, amongst some folks even in our circles. Oh, Benny Hinn has repented. That's not repentance. Taking something a little bit too far, that's not repentance. And then he goes on in the article to say, I grew up and I heard other people doing this, and so I just followed them. That's not repentance. You know what repentance would look like with Benny Hinn? Here's what repentance would look like. Benny Hinn would empty his bank account. Empty it. And he would do his dead level best. He would give away every cent he has to as many people as he could give it to. There's, there's no way he could even do what Zacchaeus has done. I mean, he's been in it too, too many years. He doesn't have, even though he's a multimillionaire, he could never repay what he's stolen from people. But he would empty his coffers, close his bank account, give away his money to as many people as he could, or to some good sound ministries. He would shut his ministry down forever shut it down forever, and put himself under the authority of a good, sound, doctrinal 
doctrinally sound church, put himself under the authority of the elders of that church, and then work at Walmart. That would be repentance. Anything short of that is not. Anything short of that is not repentance. If you're convicted of your sin, you wrong someone, if you wrong God and you realize it and you say, I'm sorry, but then you haven't come to a place of repentance. Own it. Own it. Confess it. Repent and then move on. James says, when lust has conceived. When lust has conceived. Now, this word lust in the Greek is epithumia. And lust, as we read it in English, may have a little bit different connotation than what the word actually means. The, the word in the Greek, epithumia, simply means desire. It says, when desire has conceived. Now, desire, epithumia, in and of itself, in and of itself, is not inherently sinful. Because you can desire some things that are not inherently sinful. It depends, the sinfulness of it depends on three things. Number one, whether or not what you desire is inherently sinful. Number two, whether or not the plan of action to get what you desire is inherently sinful. And number three, whether or not how you plan to use what you desire is inherently sinful. I'll give you an illustration. If I were to be walking uh, in the mall one day and pass by a jewelry store and I see a watch that I like, I see a watch and I desire that watch. Nothing inherently sinful about that. A watch is neither good nor bad. It's not immoral. or It's just amoral. It's just a watch. But then if I were to say, you know, I really can't afford that watch, and so I think I'm going to try to steal that watch, then I've moved into sin. Then I've moved into sin. But even if I were to see the watch, want the watch, buy the watch, but then I'm going to, desire to decide to use that watch in a sinful way, I'm going to use this watch as a timer on a bomb. Then I've moved into sin. Epithemia, the desire, desire in and of itself is not what is sinful. What are you desiring? How do you desire to get it? How do you plan to get it? And what do you plan on doing with that thing that you desire? John MacArthur says this, he says, quote, Food and sleep are wonderful and necessary gifts of the Lord, without which we could not live. But when we desire and covet them in extreme ways, they become gluttony on the one hand and indolence on the other. Physical intimacy, in and of itself, desiring physical intimacy, is not bad, provided that that is within the confines of marriage. Physical intimacy outside of marriage is deadly, deadly. But what James has in view here is desiring something that is prohibited. Desiring something that is off limits. Desiring something that is illegal. Desiring something that is sinful. Desiring another man's wife or another woman's husband. Desiring uh, physical intimacy outside the confines of marriage. This is what James has in mind. And that's why it's rendered as lust, even though the word itself is desire. In James, this is what he has in view. This is a, something that is bad. And when James, James says, when desire has conceived, when lust has conceived, contextually, desire gives birth to sin. It, it, it conceives sin. Literally, it gives birth to sin. We begin to rationalize a way to get what we desire. We begin to justify it in our minds. 
And if you are doing anything to justify sin in your mind, then you, then the, your desire has already given birth to sin. Trying to justify something that God prohibits is in and of itself sinful. But we do this. Oh, well, it's just going to be, nobody will miss this. I'll just take it. It's just going to be a quick look on the computer. Nobody's going to know. It's not going to hurt anybody. If you're, if you're playing those games in your mind, you're already sinning. You're already sinning. Your lust, your desire has already given birth to sin. And James says, when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. It brings forth death. The offspring of ungodly desire is death. Romans chapter 6, verse 23. Paul says, for the wages of sin is death, physical and spiritual death. This is the ungodly offspring of a desire that God prohibits in his word. And this is one offspring, dear ones, that you want to abort. This is one offspring that you want to put to death. Dear ones, if you are in union with the Lord Jesus Christ, if you are here this morning and you know Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord, you need not fear eternal death. The wrath of God has been removed from you. You have repented of your sins. The righteousness of Jesus Christ imputed to your account. You need not fear the eschatological judgment of God. But as a believer, if you're a Christian and you sin, please know that there will be consequences to that sin. There will be consequences to it. And sin left unchecked leads to death. Sometimes for the believer, even physical death. Sometimes God will take real believers out of this world because of habitual, unrepentant sin in their life. He'll just take them out. There are consequences to it. One of the most egregious consequences to unrepentant sin is bringing reproach on the gospel of Jesus Christ. Claiming the name of Christ and yet carrying yourself in such a way that brings reproach to the gospel. Sin always leads to death. Proverbs chapter 9, if you want to flip over there real quickly. Proverbs chapter 9. There is much in the book of Proverbs about the allure of sin and the danger of sin, how sin entices, how it drags away, and it leads to death. Look at Proverbs chapter 9, verse 13. Solomon writes this, he says, The woman of folly is boisterous. She is naive and knows nothing. She sits at the doorway of her house, on a seat by the high places of the city, calling to those who pass by, who are making their paths straight. And she calls out, she says, whoever is naive, let him turn in here. And to him who lacks understanding, she says, stolen water is sweet and bread eaten in secret is pleasant. She's enticing him. Then verse 18, but he does not know that the dead are there, that her guests are in the depths of Sheol. Sin has consequences left unchecked. It leads to death. For the unbeliever, eternal death. For the believer, a loss, of, a loss of fellowship with the Lord Jesus Christ, bringing reproach on the gospel, and even possibly our own physical death. And dear friends, I would tell you that it is truly my prayer that before I do anything to bring reproach on the name of Jesus Christ, that God would take me out of this world. I hope that that's a prayer that you have for your own life. We must go to war with sin. 
This is a battle you and I are in. We must go to war with it. Romans chapter 8, verse 13, Paul says we are to put to death the deeds of the flesh. We are to put them to death. Let me read you a quote from John Owen. John Owen was a Puritan preacher. John Owen says this. Now his language is a little bit antiquated, you'll see, but John Owen says this. He says, let no man think to kill sin with few, easy, or gentle strokes. He who has once smitten a serpent, if he does not follow, if he follows not on his blow until it be slain, may be sorry that he ever began the quarrel. And so he who undertakes to deal with sin and pursues it not constantly to the death. Owen says, don't put, to, put sin to death lightly. Don't just wrap it with a few strokes. Beat it to death. And if you don't, you may be sorry you ever began the quarrel. John Owen says, do you mortify? Do you make it your daily work? Be always at it while you live. Cease not a day from this work. Be killing sin or it will be killing you. Be killing sin or it will be killing you. We must go to war with our sin. We are to take every thought captive. Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, it is not a sin to be tempted. Okay, I want everyone to understand that. It's not a sin to be tempted. But left unchecked, that sin, that, that, that temptation leads to desire, to lust, and it gives birth to sin. It's not a sin to be tempted. But when you are tempted, you are to immediately go to war with that temptation. You are to immediately take every thought captive to Christ. Take every thought captive and put that temptation to death. Because if you don't put it to death, it will try to put you to death. Philippians chapter 4, verse 8. Paul says, finally, brethren, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, if there is any excellence and if anything worthy of praise, dwell on these things. Take every thought captive, get it out of your mind, Change your thoughts, take it captive, put it to death, and then think on things that are good and pure and lovely, anything that is of good report, anything that is of excellence, anything that is honorable to God. You begin to think on these things. And how do we do that? Dear friends, there is no way to do it if the Word of Christ does not dwell richly within us. Colossians chapter 3. We are to, Colossians 1, we are to let the Word of Christ dwell richly within us. If you are not in a regular habit of reading and studying God's Word, when temptation comes, you will be wholly unprepared for it. You won't be able to put it to death. Let the Word of Christ dwell richly within you. And when the Word of Christ dwells richly within you, you will be able to take every thought captive. And you will be able to put that temptation to death. It's not going to happen automatically. Spend time in this Word. Read it, study it, obey it. Then and only then will you be able to take every thought captive and put your sin to death. Now, as I get ready to close, let me say this. That there is a great paradox that comes as we grow in our maturity in the Lord Jesus Christ. And the paradox is this. We see it in Romans chapter 7. You remember Romans chapter 7? When Paul says... I do that thing which I hate, and what I want to do, I do not do. 
but I do the thing which I hate it. But, but it's not me doing it. Sin dwells in me. When you read Romans chapter 7, it almost, almost sounds schizophrenic. And some people say, well, Paul, was, Paul couldn't have been a Christian then because he was, he was struggling so mightily with sin and he just seemed to kind of... No, Romans 7 is not, not the mark of an unbeliever. Romans 7 is the mark of a mature Christian. Because here's what's going to happen. The more you grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ, the more the Word of Christ dwells richly within you, the more sensitive you will become to sin. And I hope and I pray that if the Lord allows me to live another 10 years, I hope and pray that 10 years from now, I will see things in my life that I need to put to death that I don't see right now. And so that's the paradox. The more we grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ, we should have a decreasing pattern of sin, an increasing pattern of holiness. But with that increasing pattern of holiness comes an increasing sensitivity to sin. And so it is a lifelong battle of putting to death the deeds of the body. And if the word of Christ dwells richly within us, we are fully equipped to do that. Again, being tempted is not a sin. Giving into it is. We are not victims of sin. We are perpetrators of sin. When temptation comes, and it will, put it to get to death. It looks good. It entices. It'll draw you in. But if you don't put it to death, it will kill you. The author of Hebrews says that there is pleasure in sin for a season. For a season. But the wages that it pays is death. As I close, I want to ask you, are you in union with the Lord Jesus Christ? Have you come to that place of genuine repentance when you've been convicted of your sin? You realize that you're a sin. Have you been convicted that, that of the truth that you can do nothing to save yourself? Turn from your sin, repent of sin, and place your trust in the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. And dear ones, let me say this that if you are not yet in union with Jesus Christ, if you are not certain yet of where you would die when you go to heaven, maybe someone here is here and they're thinking, well, I've got sin in my life that God just can't forgive. I've known some people like that. What I've done is too bad. Dear friends, there is nothing that you have done that is greater than the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. There is no sin that you have committed that God will not forgive. Confess your sin before the Lord. Turn from it. Trust His finished work on the cross and He will save you. He will save you. Jesus said, The one who comes to me, I will in no wise cast out. And for the believer, go to war. Go to war with your sin. Let's close in a word of prayer. Father, what a comfort it is to know that we are not ill-equipped that yes, temptation comes, yes, it looks good, yes, it entices, we are drawn to it, but Lord, may we see the dangers around it. May we abandon any pretense of shifting blame to anyone but ourselves. Father, bring us to a place of confession, of owning our sin, trusting in you. We thank you for your word, we thank you for the indwelling of your Holy Spirit. As we progress in our grace and knowledge, 
of the Lord Jesus Christ. May we obey your word for your glory. It's in his name we pray. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.